Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello, welcome to Going Off Track. Hello, and... and um Welcome to you. Welcome to me. Um, who's, this, who's this cute guy over here? This is Steven. Not with, the Steven you're used to. With a PH. With a PH. Steven has been in the room for like the last uh, eight podcasts, probably. Probably, since we started doing them over here at Pulse Music. Pulse wow. Music, that's 29th Street in Manhattan. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> All your recording needs. All your recording needs. Voiceover, band work, whatever you need. Whatever you need. Podcasting. Podcasting. I'm looking at a whole array of beautiful guitars over here. Yeah. We're in the control really room right nice now. Guitars. Um, great live room. Great <clears throat> board. This I would is recommend it. Classic API 1608. Uh, nice. It is, yeah. in fact. This guy Jonah really knows his stuff. It's funny because this is the board we had at Rubber Track, so we haven't really? gone. Yeah, we've stayed close to home with that. In fact, well, no, those are different diffusers, but similar. <laughs> it's very interesting. Uh, today in the podcast, speaking of boards and recording, we have a producer. Hell yeah, baby, John Aniello. Um, John has produced albums. I'm looking at his discography. But there's too many. Dinosaur Jr., Hold Steady, Thurston Moore, Sunvolt, Andrew W.K., Sonic Youth. Insane resume. So many records. Very insane. Holy Sons. Holy Sons. Yes, he did the Emo's new record with Holy Sons. And he also did the Motion City, the last Motion City soundtrack record, um, which is kind of how we sort of met. And Steven also is a fan of John's podcast. Very big fan. Oh, What's it really? called again? This is actually the first podcast I think I make a noise in. I ask a question. Yes. For the first yeah. time. Keep an, keep an ear out for Steven oh, to good pipe thing up you're in the during internet. the podcast. It's groundbreaking. It is. <laughs> but what's, what's the name of John's podcast? It's called Gear Club. Gear Club. Yeah, it's I've really awesome. It it's yeah. with him and um, Stuart. I can't remember his last name. I can't believe I'm blanking right now. It's okay. Um, it's what we do here. Yeah. Going off track. We'll edit it in. It's like. awesome. If you dig like <laughs> old school stories about just like yes. studios in New York right. and they have really interesting guests, great podcast. I'm going to add it to my list because I've been falling out with some of my tech podcasts lately. So it, they get nerdy with the gear stuff, but they also, it's, it's, okay. it's for everyone. <laughs> yeah. You could be a layman. You think none I of us are, but no. Yeah. I know a thing or two about musical equipment. Absolutely. What do you know? How many strings on a guitar? Quick, quick, uh, come on. Six, unless you're in corn. <laughs> uh, anyways, uh, 
Yeah, John is here. John's great. John was really sick when he did this episode, but he didn't cancel at the last minute. He showed up. Why has that happened recently, John? So props to John for (laughs) following through on a commitment. And let's get into it with John and Yellow. All right, thank you so much for coming, John. Oh, no worries. So where's uh, our buddy Emil? Emil's on his way. Fucker. He's He's out floating down a river on some sort of psychotropic. Um, Sorry, I need to blow your... No, it's fine. Blow your roll. Emil will show up at some point. He's floating. In the next 10 minutes, probably. Emil, Emil, who had it at at one of our live podcasts, the the utmost balls to play the full song, Suicide is Painless. (laughs) In such a way that only, I think, Brad and I were like, that's from the movie yeah <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's amazing. Um, amazing i was sort of i mean i know you've been around for a while but i was introduced to you through justin pierre yeah yeah because yeah. he justin. was staying at my house when you produced that motion city record we were mixing it I guess. you were mixing it yeah, yes yeah, yeah. and he was so excited to be working with you oh we had so much fun yeah i love him yeah he's great he's yeah. one of my favorite people yeah. yeah we had a blast and um yeah yeah that was a really fun record to make um i mean you know that I know them. I knew them forever, and um, just going to Minneapolis, going to Minneapolis, going to Pachyderm with them, and you know making them track all live. You know when it was such a different thing for them. You know right. they were so used to like Rick Ocasek having them do drums and bass and stuff like that, and just say, "No, you guys go out there and all pl- you played a thousand shows in your lives. Go play together." And they were like, "What?" And it was great. It was like fun. But but me and Justin totally bonded you know whenever i've gone back there i've visited them my daughter my older daughter who's 28 now became huge friends with them and is hung with them like it's it's it was okay. there's a total connection between my family and and the pierres and those guys sound like they're so influenced by dinosaur jr and all these sort of bands that you had sort of well they came up with the, the thing that they hit me with was the Jawbox record i did in 96 mm. okay they love that record and that was a live record so yeah, buddy. Oh, hey, buddy. We just started. We're good. Yeah. We're good. I yes. hope so. No, you're right here. Welcome, Emil. Yeah. You're right here. Yeah. Emil's here. Right yeah. here. This is exciting. Good to see you. Look at you. You don't, you don't look Emil. sick. No, I've been in bed for like three days. Okay. Yeah. All right, continue. Go ahead. Um, I'm not stopping anything. Emil drifts in. See, Jonah? I did one of yours. Talk about vibe killer. I know, right? <laughs> I, John was just talking about how he produced a Jawbox record. No big deal. No, no one cares about it. Six? I was going to say, yeah. 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 But it was the self-titled. And when I, got, when I met with them the first time or talked to them, we did rehearsals like previous to the record. And they just they kept referring to that record that I guess maybe they were growing up and that record spoke to them. And that was the kind of thing where it was like, well, you know, those guys went on, Jawbox went on tour for a month before we started the record and played the whole new record. So when we got in the studio, they knew the record down pat. It was like so great. They already had figured out what worked and what didn't work, you know, just you know, by crowd response. And, and they had tweaked the songs and we basically rolled into water music and um, they were just on point. It was really fun. And, and uh, Zach's a very thoughtful drummer, right? He's he amazing. Like, he knows exactly yeah. what he's going to play when he. He is, and I love him. And we're we're obviously still friends to this day. But I just always remember watching him as he was like the guy in the desk. He was just like you know, like <laughs> matter of factly, just playing all this amazing, sorry, arrhythmic stuff. 
but also rhythmic and just like as if it was as he was just like signing things and like stapling something and it was just so amazing to watch him do that and was was jay was jay producing at that time was he recording no i produced it so basically that was like did you teach him everything i didn't teach him but we still you know we actually have gone over the years back and forth with stuff he called me two weeks ago we were talking about some things we've we've maintained a really good friendship over the years and i won't say it's like a mentoring thing but it's a thing where i mean i once again it's like this thing where you make a record with someone and you just love them as people which i have with this guy right now and and it's like you always have this friendship this bond and over the years like i've you know gone down to baltimore to help jay with stuff or or whatever but he can pick up the phone and ask me a question and we're also just friends we could we laugh about stuff when i turned 50 my wife threw me a surprise party and him and uh, he came up from Baltimore. Zach was there, and it was really—it's just wonderful. Wonderful, but yeah, no, I was the actual producer of the record. But um, but I could tell Jay was super savvy. You know, he was always like watching and just—he, I knew he was thinking about what he was very thoughtful about what was going on. What was it like working on the Holy Sons record? Torturous. <laughs> Talk as if he's not here. Yeah. No, okay. No, we had so much fun. We had so much fun. It was just me and him. Yeah. Right. We just yeah, had so much fun. Not real normal i mean compared to like the javax thing which is old school like you know they're like finely tuned as a machine right this was, this was more like two people effortlessly hanging out and just kind of not even thinking i don't think we ever even really even talked about what we were doing well we had those member we had those lunches we had a bunch of lunches before but I mean, we probably talked about like taking acid and stuff. <laughs> well, mean, of course, <laughs> we weren't. We weren't like okay. So this is like super important that we capture, you know, this, you know, British prog vibe from s- the summer of '73 when yeah. they were on, yeah. you know, their third tour. They weren't as good, yeah. but it sounded cooler, you know. <laughs> but uh, we, we but we talked about that. arrangements and stuff, and we went back and forth. I mean, we had a plan. Like we, I remember before we went in, we tweaked a bunch of the songs, pretty good, like vibe wise and even just like some of the songs like cut out a couple of things and you know what i mean yeah you're right you're right but but in terms of like i think the beauty of it for me and this goes into sort of what you were just talking about it's like finding these these very close friendships as you're in the the business of it all you know you're you're running around you wake up and you're just at work you don't know if you like the people you're working with but over the years, there's a few people, some maybe more aesthetically, but some aesthetically and familial-wise uh, drift into your life and you only have this this stable, you know, if you were on your deathbed or something, you would think of these people and uh, there's something about, I don't know why it happens, like what it is that you you sense in that person. It's not really obvious, it's not really specific, but it's just, it's this... It's this familial thing is like we we're in the shit together, right? But it's like there's a weird trust, and and that was very relieving compared to like a band going in and trying to, you know, make a hit record or something. There wasn't any sort of pressure like that. It was more just like two people enjoying what they do without thinking about it too much. You remember the first time you came to see me at Fluxivity? Yes. We were going to have lunch. <laughs> he rings the bell, and I open the door, and he's got a coffee cup with no top on it. And for the first minute, I was like, what the fuck are you holding? He's like, coffee cup. How come you got no top on it? He's like, I don't know. It was like 
That's insane. Like, <laughs> <laughs> we talked for about a minute. But, about, yeah, but, like, but I was like totally like outraged, like walking around with a... This is preposterous. Like, yeah, without a, co- a... I was like, what happens if a fucking pigeon shits in your coffee? Or what happens if you trip and you spill all your coffee? And that went on for way longer than it needed to be. But I thought that was... Yeah, like, it was great a, that that a, was the first a, conversation we A couple had. hours in or something, uh, you know, he's like, so you're from Florida? And, you know, what you, you grew up doing what? And, you know, he's like... Why, why don't you have a fucking lid on your car? Yeah. <laughs> like, John, I have a similar instinct right now. I'm like, I want an answer. This is so abnormal. Oh, it's totally disturbing Hot to me as a New Yorker, a lid, like, as someone who grew up in New York. I'm like, why? I think, it's like, well, how dare you? I mean, where from here? Who do you, you think you are? Lid, you go napkin over the yeah. lid, yeah. So, so you don't even have splash. Yeah. I, mean, is, like, I can't even imagine. This. I don't. I don't. I grew up like. I feel like I sound like a simpleton, but like <laughs> I never, uh, I never locked my door or anything. So like there was always this sense of like uh, just carefree, just, yeah, this trusting kind of like my guru when I was a kid came down from Boston and he would make fun of me because I was a typical Chapel Hill kid. In that he was like, "You guys are just fucking flighty down here. Like you just don't care about anything." <laughs> You know, the sun shines every day. Everybody fucking loves you, supports you. He Like, you know, city kids don't understand that. That's They're a like, tough guru. Yeah. Well, <laughs> there's a defensiveness. There's a tough exterior. Like, I was walking past, a, you know, some mural maybe of, of Biggie Smalls or something. It, it kind of came to me, like, that, you know, a lot of dudes like that, the personified, you know, Brooklyn are like they they have a tough exterior and then right when you get past that they just turn into like the softest teddy bear is my assumption but it's like a defensive layer and I didn't have to ever have one so I was just kind of fucking happy go lucky and around with no lid you know but I'm I'm also a father. So I like I spend my oh. entire day going. Why the fuck you do? How can you? Where are your shoes? Why are you not wearing socks? What the fuck? We what gotta get on the it, bus. What is that, man? Because I've got two, and my, they just turned six, and it's like all of a sudden reason has has formed yeah. in their head. It's like the one thing Catholics got right: the age of reason. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. And it's I, I do that constantly, and I read that there's around four and around fourteen is when the frontal lobe hits communication again right and so legitimately when a teenager looks at their parent and goes you don't understand me the parent goes no i don't there's right. like no functional right. way for you right. to do that does right. that end you have older children does well i've got stop? a 28 and an 11 and i gotta say the best part about that was i got to forget all the problems when the 28 year old got older and then we became buddies and she became my wingman and we went to shows together and you know we'd be playing dice on a tour bus at four in the morning i'd be like shit we got to get out of here we got to go home I got. I forgot all this stuff. Growing her, getting having her grow up, and it hurts even more now because I have to remember. Like every morning when I wake up, my eleven year old and go, "All right, we got to get on the bus," and she's like, "I don't want to get up." It's like, oh, you know what I mean. So it's like it's even more crushing, in a way. But no, they have. I mean, they just have a thing. You know, it's it's really funny. No matter, no matter where you're at as a parent, they're just so focused on what they know and they know better. You know what I mean? And they they just, they exist to tell you no. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? They just exist to, you know, well, you guys all grew up in bands and shit, right? I mean, you know, I mean, you guys, everybody, I rebelled. I mean, you know, when I was a kid, my parents were immigrant Italians, and I was, like, doing acid in my basement listening to Pink Floyd. So, I mean, that's pretty much (laughs) rebelling. 
Um, I thought that was compulsory at that time. No, yeah, part of part of the uh, <laughs> where, where did the you uniform. Huh? <laughs> where did you grow up? I grew up in Bensonhurst, Brooklyn, which. If you look back, it was the land of Saturday Night Fever. Sure. Like, real cugini Italian. What's, like, your your favorite, like, deep-cut Italian dish? I'm not talking, like, like a veal franchise. Like, something that you can't find on, like, your standard Italian menu. Well, we still go... No, well, we still go back. There's a really great, like, kind of mobby restaurant in Bensonhurst that we always take my mom for her birthday. She turned 79 this year, called L&B's. And the other name for it is Spumoni Gardens. Oh, okay. And I will I tell know. you, we just do family awesome. style. And this year we had awesome. 20 people. <laughs> and the Spumoni is amazing. It's Italian ice with like oh, pistachio so chocolate mm. and like almond or, some, mm. or mm-hmm. something like that. It's, it's pretty amazing. But um, their linguine and clam sauce is fucking amazing. And their seafood salad like appetizer is just ridiculous. The seafoods, yeah, spot there. But but no, it's also you get your manicotti and all that crap. I mean, it's it it <laughs> across the board, it's great. Um, Did you grow up in a house saying macaroni and gravy or yeah? Yeah, my parents um, were Italian immigrants, but they grew up with the American dream, so they right. raised three hippie kids. Like both my older brothers were hippies, long hair, and my older brother was like a huge Grateful Dead fan, and sure. all the music I got turned on to was through my brothers. So. But we were surrounded by this neighborhood of, you know, once again, mobbed up. Safest neighborhood in in in, sure. in, in, in the city. They because cops, no grandmother right? ever got mugged or, yeah, you know what there. I mean? Like, no yeah. shit went down ever. I mean, if anybody got whacked, it was, there was a reason. Um, Until Son of Sam. W- yes, which, but they nailed <laughs> him. He was the last guy because he got that parking ticket or whatever he got. His that final was, murder was, in, was in near Benson John's house. house. Yeah. Really? It was in my yeah. neighborhood, yeah. Holy shit. And I, I, we have, I have a friend in Jersey City. You know Ethan from... Uh, yeah. Yeah, so Ethan, I took him on a little tour of um, um, uh, Bensonhurst years ago, and I took him to um, the Son of Sam place, the last place, um, the Dog Day Afternoon place, where, where they filmed um, French Connection, the car chase oh, under right. the L. Yeah, the like and I took him to the Welcome Back Cotter High School. Yeah. So there was all this shit going on in my neighborhood that was just crazy. And, you know, 1977, I'm long hair, and we're in the park getting high until basically a bunch of cousines come in and go, like, hey, faggots. Yeah. And then we just all scatter. And yeah, that yeah. was pretty much a lot of the summer. <laughs> you know? It was very fast. That was your summer of summer. Yeah. Yeah. People forget the old, like, the old school Italians of New York City who, like, scared the shit oh, yeah. out of anyone who wasn't them. Yeah. I grew up with stories of my father being a Jewish kid in North Bronx, and then the Jewish immigrants were, like, the poor trash, and the Italians were, like, the tough middle-class kids. And he's like, he's like, the only way I got by is, like, I did their math homework for them. Right. There's this group of guys called the vendettas and there were these like italian gangs and stuff I'm yeah like, man i'm like i'd love to just be a fly in the wall and see some of that it's like a movie yeah you're, you're okay you know at the end of the day i made it but it was it was dicey could have went the other way but like think of vinnie barbarino from welcome back hotter yeah. but really mean and like right like scary yeah because yeah, yeah, that's yeah. what it was like these guys were really it was pretty crazy and that was were they um, into like you say you were like Doing doing drugs and stuff at that time were those guys into like doing drugs? Not so I don't much, think right? so because I think if they smoked a lot more weed, they'd be a lot more chill. You know yeah, what I mean? They eat more true. pizza and beat up less hippies. <laughs> but um, but um, but that actually that that leads to my next question. So when you were you know smoking weed in the park uh, and and your brother was doing his thing, so somehow your brother turned into your eventide job. 
Can you talk about that? Yeah, yeah. So basically, when I was a kid, when I was 17, um, my, my brother's 10 years older. So he went to CCNY, got an engineer, engineering degree. Also where my father went. Perfect. Bummer. Drove a cab for a while. <laughs> taught taught uh, uh, math in, in uh, I guess, I, I don't know what level of school, but was a teacher for a while. And then got this job at this fledgling company called Eventide, which was on 54th Street. Um, and I want to say 8th Avenue, right across from where the Ritz was. Oh, okay. Uh, Studio 54 was at that time. And yeah, they were cutting edge digital technology. And so basically because I was just kind of motivated like the rest of my brothers and my parents raised us, my summer job when I was like, I guess 17 was, you know, every day I'd show up at Eventide and put together flangers, delay lines and do all that shit. And I would literally just be production, um, which as a 17 year old, I made enough money to have my, like I was the first of my friends to have a bank account, a banking card. Um, I bought my bitch in stereo when I was a kid, my Pioneer uh, SX737 receiver. Like, nice. you know, it was like, yeah. I've, got my, I've got my dad's receiver from 76. Yeah. Made my, made my neighbors really mad in my basement because I would just crank tunes. Because there's, you know? there's just such oh, good piece yeah. of machinery. And um, so anyway, that was the beginning. And I did that for a bunch. And I knew it was time to quit college when I was basically in Brooklyn College and then take the train after and go to Eventide at like 5 o'clock and work until 8 o'clock. I was like literally just working all the time and I was like, yeah, I don't really care. You know, at that point I went from 3.6 grade point average to like 2.4 and I was like, I need to do something. And then my middle brother got me an interview at the record plant when I was 19 as just a general, you know, just a guy cleaning rooms and filing tapes at working in the tape library. So that that's really how the whole thing started. What was your middle brother's sort of legacy? What was he doing? So he was working at the record plant. He was in the in the uh, he was a maintenance guy. He was basically aligning tape machines and fixing stuff. And mm. you know, uh, the record plant at that point was a four room massive complex. So they had a full maintenance staff of like four guys. And back in the old tape days, yeah. you know, you had to go around to each room and align each tape machine. Yeah. I mean, it was like, you know, uh, uh, pretty much a routine. I mean, it wasn't like now where you turn on pl- uh, Pro Tools and you're ready to go. You know, if there were problems with the tape machine, you had to fix shit. I mean, it was it was real work for these guys. Did they need to, did the tape machines need to get up, uh, set up? Every day. Every session? Every day. Every day. Every day. Wow. wow. Yeah, every day. You would oh. just put up the tones and align, record a line, play back a line, and then even do the multi-tracks, that's 24 tracks, and then do the, the uh, quarter inch, the two track. Right. Back then it was quarter inch. Now we mix a half inch. Yeah, right. But no, it was a real gig. I mean, it was real responsibility. Huh. Even back then for me as a tape librarian, you know, think about the days of tape. I mean, we had all the Born to Run tapes, and, you know, we had a huge tape vault in the, in the roof, and the whole point was when Columbia needed that tape, you you didn't just give someone the tape. There was a whole thing about signing out and stuff because you had to be accountable for the tape because if any tapes went missing, you'd lose your job. It was a, right. it was a real problem for the studio. So it was really serious <laughs> shit then. Yeah. It wasn't like a hard drive. Oh, you, you know, we finished the Holy Sons record. I gave email a hard drive. I have a hard drive. We're good to go. Yeah, yeah. You know, this was a real serious, serious business. Sure. Old Johnny here, I believe. <laughs> that sounds horrible. Old Johnny. But even better when you're my mom. Is that his Christian yeah. name, Old Johnny? Yeah. yeah. That's my porn name. <laughs> <laughs> It'll make. Actually, that's my penis's porn name. I'm Johnny. I'd like you to meet Old Johnny. <laughs> this is old Johnny. <laughs> Wrinkly, but it works. Exactly. I was going to say, which would have been middle logical. middle name is Flaccid, but whatever. We don't talk about that much. Old Flaccid Johnny. How's Old Johnny feeling right now? He's a little flaccid. All right. 
You're sick. It's fine. Yeah. <laughs> uh, he, I believe he was in the record plant at when John Lennon got killed. Because John Lennon came right? came in to the record plant and left. And I think John was there. I I wasn't working on the session, but I was one of the like general guys helping the setup. Oh, wow. Yeah, I, we were actually, at that point I was home watching Monday Night Football. But they were in there. It was post-Double Fantasy. They were doing... So you heard it from... Uh, I heard uh, it from Howard Cosell. From Howard Cosell. Which was fucked. That's the wow. way, yeah. Because uh-huh. the next day we went into work and it was a shit show. There, there were film Stopped crews Stopped the middle every- of the football game and uh-huh. like... Yeah. Yeah, it was fucked. <sighs> it was crazy. But but what happened was they'd finished Double Fantasy. They actually recorded Double Fantasy at Hit Factory, which was kind of a little bone of contention because obviously Hit Factory and record playing were rivals. Mm-hmm. Um, and Lennon had done like um, Walls and Bridges at Record Plant and uh, Rock and Roll. He's done a bunch of records there. Um, but anyway, I think what they did was they wanted to do like songs after the fact, after the record. So they went back to the Record Plant as kind of like a peace offering. And they were there when when the shit went down. Yeah, it was pretty wow. fucking crazy. And you must have been connected in a community where... A lot of people knew him. And, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, was, yeah. My buddy Steve, who is my um, kind of the kid, who the guy who was above me, who grew me up into an assistant, not necessarily an engineer, but he brought me through the ropes to get from the library to assistant engineer. He was actually assisting on that session. Wow. Yikes. And we're still friends now. He's a big shot, like, engineer guy in Nashville. We're still, like, totally tight buds. But he was working on that session. It was fucking crazy. But the next day, like I said, walking around the halls, there were film crews everywhere. Like, you couldn't oh, yeah. walk down the hall without people, like, just videoing. The, the big uh, guitar he had given the studio and interviewing people, it was it was pretty fucking... It was m- way more real than I would ever want to deal with. You know what I mean? It was yeah. really fucked up. What was, the, what was the record that you think, like, uh, as they say in wrestling, put you over? Like, the one... Me? Yeah. Um, the, like, where you felt like, I'm know what i'm doing i've been that i know what i'm doing oh well that's, i've that, yet that could, to make that record but that's why i'm still really okay, into what good. i do all right now um well there are different like parts of my you know so-called career mm-hmm. but uh like as an assistant i one of the one a record that i worked on which i basically got into a really good crew was assisting on the first cindy lauper record i i, I ended up working with uh, an engineer called uh, named william whitman who once again still buddies with? I think a common thread in what I say is I'm still buddies with all these people. You know, there's like lifelong things. But he became my mentor, and I basically learned everything he does as an engineer, and I still incorporate a lot of the shit he did as mine, like snare mm-hmm. sound, guitar sound, mm-hmm. and just the way he monitors and just his thing. So that was an important record for me because I became part of this team that made a lot of records after that. Mm-hmm. Um, I learned a lot from him. And the producer was this guy, Rick Chertoff, who, by the way, today's his birthday on Facebook, I saw. And he was he's a great producer, real song-oriented guy. I mean, that first Cindy Lauper record, he picked, like, if you look at the songs, they're all, most, a lot of them, not all of them, are covers. But the covers that he picked are really wonderful. Um, but then moving forward in the 90s, I was lucky enough in the course of a year to make a record with the Screaming Trees and a record with Dinosaur Jr. And both those records in like early 90s did really great. And I think that kind of got me into a world where people trusted me to make kind of alternative, you know, rock records. My wife worked I'm, for the booking agent that handled Mark and um, right. uh, Jay Maskus for yeah, years. there you go. And so she, what a uh, team. Uh, Steve Call, I think. Was yeah, Steve Call. Yeah, I know Cole. Steve Call. I know him forever, yeah. My wife worked there for years. Amazing. In fact, when... He's a uh, great guy. Uh, awesome. And I think when um, I think when Beyond came out, we were, Joan and I were working 
And I think Jonah, we worked on a TV show together and he wrote the interview for, I think it was you, right? Dinosaur Jr.? Yeah. You were there, yeah. And we showed up and it was like the first time Lou and Murph and yeah, had yeah. come back together. And Henry Rollins had come on one of the shows and was yeah. talking all about that record. Yeah, they, it was, they did the interview, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It was so good. Yeah, yeah. John, I was curious. I mean, yeah, yeah Jay Mask is obviously like amazing guitar, one of my favorite guitar players. I mean, what's it like recording him i mean is he just like ripping solo after so like how like how much direction do you give someone like that who kind of is has so much of their own style so just to put things in perspective back in with where you've been without a sound i did the records from top to bottom okay in the new dinosaur jr reboot which is wonderful by the way because they've made four great records and Mm -hmm. i don't know how many reunions you could say are as you know vital now as they were back then I'm basically coming as the mixing engineer. Okay. So I won't say I'm sitting around while he's ripping solos, but I do know there's a lot of times I'm mixing and he's like in a spare bedroom with a little rig and just shredding. But I know from back with those records, and also I did a bunch of stuff with the, when he did The Fog and I work on the solo records, but my favorite thing about Jay with the solos back then was he would just solo from the beginning of the song to the end of the song. He would just hit record on the analog tape machine and he would just shred the whole way. And then at the end of the song, you'd hit rewind, you'd arm another track and he'd do the same thing. And then you'd have four tracks and you would just go to the solo and just comp those solos. But he just fucking... Went for oh the That's like exactly <laughs> what I wanted. Yeah. Me too. No, that that, can we hear those just full solo <laughs> songs? Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. they exist somewhere. Yeah. And I wasn't really smart enough to actually do roughs of that shit for my own little private library because yeah. I was never. I, I always, you know, being in that world of trust, you never want to do anything where yeah. someone is like, what sure, the fuck? Yeah. You know what I mean? But I never had it in my brain to be like, I should just double this shit and make a fucking loop of Jay Solos, and here I go. Uh, and there was no internet, so I wouldn't do anything with it anyway. So yeah, yeah. Is it ever difficult? Like, like, do you have to change your headspace when you're going into a record, top to bottom, and then you're going in as a mixing engineer? Do you have to like wear a different hat, or you kind of come in with the same with the same um, attack? I think. At this point, after doing it for so long, I'm kind of just good. You know what I mean? I, yeah. I don't really, um, I don't, I mean, I, I look at what I do. I'm I'm here to make Emil the best record I can make him at. You know what I mean? At this point, you yeah. know what I mean? It's like I'm I, I'm hired to work and, and just make sure his record is as good as it could be at that point. Right. Um, and it's the same thing with the mixing. I feel like I'm just hired to make them the best sounding record I could make them. You know what I mean? So for me, it's not like I kind of trouble over what my place is. Right. And I will try things messing around, but I always defer to the artist. And if there's any ever confusion, I will pitch my idea if I really think it's great to the point of I really will pitch it. But never to the point of being like a douche. You know right. what I mean? Nobody yeah, yeah. needs to be a douche in this studio. Yeah, at the end of the day, it's um, it's their record. I do want it to be great. And one of the things I say is, you know, if we're A, being two things and my idea loses, when the record comes out, no one else is ever going to know we A, B, these two fucking things. It's true. You know what I mean? So yeah. it's not like I told you so. You yeah, know what yeah, I mean? Yeah. It doesn't fucking matter. Do you feel like success has changed, Emo? <laughs> um, I feel like he's a little more, a little too fun these days. Yeah, just yeah. for a visual to everyone listening, Emil's 
sitting red-faced in between <laughs> Jonah and John right now. Wearing nothing but cashmere. That's because yeah. I have my hand on his lap. <laughs> yeah, it's an How's interesting scene doing, over man? there. Yeah, old Johnny, he's still fasting. I see animal heads. I see fruit. I see leather. It's just it's bizarre over there. I don't know what's happening. I think one thing that bonds us, maybe inadvertently, but is that we're both like, John's a real... He's a real live workaholic. He's like mm-hmm. a real motherfucker. So uh, he's not going to go home until he hits the complete wall, you know. And and uh, I'm the same way. I mean, our jobs are different, uh, but it's really – it's like soothing to meet another hardcore workaholic because you both know you're going to try as hard as you can until it's just not possible anymore. And that's what kind of allows you to lay your head down at night and go to bed because you just literally try as hard as you can. And if you have, if you can tell yourself that, like I, I, I did the best I could in this circumstance, then you can just leave it and close the door and say I did it, you know. that That's definitely a big thing I'm sure you can relate for like live performance. It's like sure. you you're in a constant blizzard of compromise. You're just like, nothing is ever right. Even if it seems like in soundcheck, it's going to be absolutely perfect. You almost get more worried because mm. you know, something's going to be completely Something opposite. Something strange is afoot. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It's not, it's, it's somehow going to be uh, completely thrown off by the presence of the crowd or something. And so anyway, like he's saying, it's like they hire him. We hire him to, uh, make the record as as good as he can make it. And he knows he's aware of his abilities. He's been doing it for so long. He tries as hard as he can with with what he's been handed, if he's mixing something. And then if you can tell yourself, I literally did the best I could, that's why you can kind of walk away and just say, you know, you got what you got and you paid for what you paid for. But you have to feel like you tax yourself all the way to the furthest sure. extent, you know. But I also feel like it's like a... I mean, I, I I use the word hire, but I don't want it to be as cold as just like, you know, a contract, like someone, you know, contracted to like do a kitchen in your house. I mean, I feel like what we do is super creative and super fun. And I think the fun thing, I always say if I wanted to be really have a serious job, I would have been a dentist. The hours would have been better, weekends off and shit like that. I do this and work weekends and have been divorced twice, you know, because I love making records. I love music and I love just having fun at work. And that's part of the reason why I feel like I can do 12 hours or more if I have mm. to, because I just enjoy it. It's like I'd rather, there's nothing else I'd rather be doing. Um, but that's why we have all kinds of fun with mixing. We set up, you know, all kinds of weird effects and we do things that are wacky when we're tracking. We'll put like a guitar as a room mic with a, through an amp, through a pickup or, you know what I mean? We'll set up all kinds of weird mics. I'll do an acoustic guitar, but it'll go through an amp and a phaser pedal. Or, you know, it's like all this, we just do all this weird shit because you know what? We can. Yeah. And let's just create like a cool vibe. And at the end of the day, if I record an acoustic and there's 10 tracks of all kinds of weird shit, if we don't like it, we can just hit the mute button. It's like, ah, oh, fuck it. You know, who cares? You know, it's like fine. But but I'd rather I'd rather it just be expansive and fun and just try things and not necessarily just be like, okay, here we are. Push up the bass drum. You know, it's not like that. It's more like, yay! yeah. <laughs> do you ever feel that something's time? finished or do you feel that it's like, as Picasso said, abandoned? I know I'm I'm good at the finishing. I feel like uh, I've been in too many situations where we've finished and then we've ruined it. Yeah, you uh, know what I mean. <laughs> where I, I I know when it's finished 
And I'm also pretty good at knowing that, okay, we're at 98%, the next 2%, even if we get it, no one else will know it's it's there, or we could just re- turn this horribly. You know yeah, what I mean? Like, yeah, yeah. I, I had an artist last year where we did mixes, and my mixes sounded really good, and then we tweaked them further and further and further, and then at the end of the day, we went back to my mixes because the other mixes weren't that good. But I knew they were good, but I didn't want to say to the artist no. I'm also, one of the things, I, I have a hard time telling the artist no. So a lot of times I will try to hedge my bets and figure out how to get the, boast, bet the bo- best of both worlds. Mm. You know, get my mixes in one place, and then even if we, like, fuck the mix up or whatever, we can still go back to my mixes. But that's, it's, you know, it's, it's an arc, you know? It's like painting a picture, you know, a picture yeah. or making a movie. I mean, Ishtar took how long to make and it was a terrible movie oh, yeah. <laughs> you know what i mean like there, there is the possibility of taking art so far that you've lost the plot well they both but both of those people uh dustin hoffman and uh, warren Beatty, each had each had uh, approval on their lines and script so they just kept fucking with each other and over there. so there was no partnership it was each right. person trying to to get that so when are we talking about ishtar oh, oh yeah. we're talking about okay. ishtar oh, yeah um and, oh, fi- yeah. And, and i have to say after a million downloads finally we're talking about ishtar i've no i've never heard of ishtar <laughs> oh my god i've heard of it's like the big dig it's it's literally yeah. the worst movie ever made like plan nine from outer space yeah. is way better really i've seen return to the yeah, Return no, to the that. Valley of the Dolls is Not better great. than fucking Ishtar. Yeah. Well, Ishtar is actually, yeah, but it's also great. Now, if you watch it, it's actually funnier now because it's so bad, it's oh, funny. But uh, it's, yeah, it was a total debacle at that point. But it's got to be It was like Heaven's Gate, which was another. But, how, but when, you work with a, when you work with an artist who, I mean, obviously you've been doing this for a while, you know what you're doing. And then you're working with an artist who might not have been doing this for a while, but know how they want to sound. That's got to be very tricky to be able to. Yeah, I mean, I strength have... the strength of persuasion. I don't mean being like, I know this, you don't, yeah, kid. Yeah. But like, they know their song, legit. Yeah. You know, yeah, yeah. But you know how things work. I've been pretty lucky because I've had a couple where I've had to pull out the how many records have you made? Two. I've made two hundred fifty. Maybe I know what I'm talking about. You know what I mean? Like I've had to pull that out once or twice in my life. But I don't like being. Once again, I don't like being that guy because that's kind of like a dick move. You know? When I get my pants on, yeah. I make gold records. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I can't really say that because I don't have a ton of them. But um, I should call a friend who has like a bunch of Grammys and have him talk to the artist and say, "I have five Grammys. Listen to John." Um, um, but but the thing is, like uh, at a certain point. Yeah, you got to really fight. Like, I did a record years ago where I had to do, I joked his and her mixes. Same thing, where I did, like, my mixes, which were great, and then I had the guy, like, you know, do his mixes, which were terrible. And I just, I I kept saying to the guy, if I play the record company your mixes, I'm going to get fired. I know, I just know. I know I'm going to get fired because they're terrible. So we had this whole thing, and we finally met in the middle. But, yeah, that happens sometimes. But I've been really lucky, and, and the interesting thing is at 57, it seems like the kids listen to me more now at 57 than they listen to me at like 45. Uh. Somehow I'm now even older to the point where, I don't know, it's like a, maybe a sine wave where I'm at the point now where <laughs> I'm listenable and maybe in five years I'll be an asshole again so they won't listen to me. Or maybe they don't want to contradict you because they're afraid you might die. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's, there's always that possibility. That's sort of be his last record. Let's just uh, take it easy. Yeah. Yeah. I sort of have a question in the same world. First question by Steve. Yeah, Steve. Which sort of starts from the Eventide thing. Like, I feel like that time in you know gear and 
and recording and studios, it was all about like more, 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 make it faster, you know, more tracks. What can we do to get this faster, better? And it turned into digital. And now it seems like that's almost like not cool. And it's like, there's this cool thing to do it all analog or try to. Well, so, yeah, I guess some people. And there's would... sort of like these two things like fighting each other. And I'm just wondering about your thoughts on that. Like, this like coming up, trying to get better and better and pro- like progress with technology. Mm. And then right. it turns into computers. And then computers become limitless. Right. And it kind of ties into what you were saying about having limitations right. or not. Right. No, no, it's great. I mean, the great thing about analog was even at 48 tracks, you know, two 24 track machines uh, synced up. I mean, you still, you know, had somewhat limits, you know, yeah. and it was pretty great. It gets to have messy limits. at 48 tracks. Yeah, and it's hard, man, because yeah. that was pre, you know, automation for mixing. So you'd have, like, you know, four pair of hands totally. pushing shit around all the time. The other I thing we you... did back then was we'd mix section at a time. You right. know, you'd mix the verse, you get it right, mix the chorus, edit it together, and say, okay, that works. You know what I mean? You'd mm. put a song together like that a lot. Right. Um, but no, the thing with the, the pro, the, the 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 benefit of being an older guy is I learned how to do it with constraints. So now in Pro Tools, I work Pro Tools way faster. You know what I mean? I don't, you know what I mean? I don't need a million tracks to do shit. But I do get the mixes when I have 105 tracks of just right. all kinds of room mics on everything like and 40 vocals. Yeah, yeah. and you just got a fucking deal. I I'm I love fucking just mutant tracks and just I don't need that. I don't need that. I don't need that. No, it's not to, not to the point. Not to the point. It's a waste, you know. Yeah. But um but yeah, I mean, it's interesting. You have to uh, being an older guy once again, I've learned how to make really really fast first decisions that are hopefully good i i think good decisions you know what i mean like first first get first thought best thought shit like that do you, do you go with more like it's more about the source and the artist i think more about the vibe yeah you know what i mean i always yeah, feel like yeah. it's about the vibe you know that's why i'm not a huge like auto-tune grid guy yeah because yeah, yeah. i feel like that's just a, that's you kills know all vibe eh, it kills the vibe yeah. and that's why i'm also a big everybody play together vibe right. because totally. you, you know you don't get a happy accident when the bass player's sitting in the control room playing it to the speakers, like, matching the drums, like, perfectly. Yeah. You know, you don't get the cool push and pull. I mean, records definitely are fun when they have elbows and angles and things that maybe aren't perfect. I mean, you know, if someone fucks up totally, I'm, I'm not going to just say, like, ah, that's cool. You know, but it's good to have a little push and pull. Yeah, I mean, accidents like, on records are, like, some I of think my so. favorite I, parts I, now. I always like doing also stuff on records where it's, like, a kid, three or four, listens in on headphones, will hear something weird. Right. Like a panning thing. Like sure. I, I work with that band Twin Peaks and I just, I knew they would be into me just making th- shit move around all the time left to right. That's like, cool. oh, that guy's over there now. That guy, you know, and it was just like, they were like, wait, wasn't that guy? And I was like, yeah, he's over there now. He's fine. You know what I mean? <laughs> but awesome. they loved it. Yeah. They were really into it. It was fun for them. So yeah. I feel like that, that's once again the fun thing, you know, like not really. And that's a good thing about Pro Tools, which I like is you can move things around. You know what I mean? You can do things easily that you couldn't do with analog. Right. So you don't have to have an assistant with the pan. Yeah, pot. dude. Yeah, uh, yeah. I used to be that guy. Trust me. <laughs> I had a question. Um, to, I have to write about so many newer bands, and it seems like this whole kind of '90s alternative music that you came up with is so many younger bands are sort of going after that sound now. It feels right. like it's being a resurgence. When you were recording, you know, Sonic Youth, Dinosaur Jr., these bands in the '90s, did you have a sense it was something special was happening? Oh yeah, yeah. Like, the grunge thing in the 90s was the best. I was totally pumped. What was it like sort of being a part... I mean, was did it just happen all of a sudden? Like, what Like what was it like kind of being in the industry then? 
Because I can't assume you're happy with the hair metal thing happening. Oh, dude. Should I tell you my Kip Winger story? Yes, yes. you must. Please, please. <laughs> okay. So, Finally, one million so, downloads. I don't know. 1994, 95, I'm, I'm working on The Last Temptation of Alice Cooper in uh, right. Sony Studios. Also a comic book by Neil Gaiman. Keep going. There you go. And uh, Alice is, you know, I, I'm engineering Don Fleming, who I started with, like, in the first um, uh, Screaming Trees record, who was a wonderful guy, was producing... And um, long story short, the last day of tracking, who comes to visit us but Kip Winger, who had played, I guess, in earlier variations of Alice's like metal band. Okay. And Kip, Alice, and Don Fleming are sitting at the console as I'm coiling cables, you know, engineer cleaning up. And uh, Kip is all pissed off because Nirvana's broke, and now Kip is, you know, pretty much donezo. <laughs> And Kip is, like, complaining about how, yeah, this fucking band Nirvana, like, what are they? They're like the fucking knack. That's, he literally says that. I'm, coil- <laughs> I'm literally coiling cables. Just If he could have seen the thought oh bubble my in my head, <laughs> like, douche, you're the knack. Like, these guys are rad. But it was so good that he was really mad at them for, like, putting him out of business. Yeah, it was really good. That's a mid- the knack. That would- okay. It's yeah. so crazy that Winger had that hit song, 17. Oh, so like, scandalous. What was that, oh, like, 92? Yeah. yeah. I guess. It's so scandalous. But it, so- isn't, it, isn't the weirder thing about Winger is, isn't, the guitar guitarist, like some sort of virtuoso, Red like, Beach, yeah, Red Beach, yeah, he's yeah. like some sort of jazz, like like can play anything, like that kind of, like a yeah. Nino Betancourt type. The eighties yeah. was just filled though with music and movies that would be so inappropriate. Yeah, now. there's yeah. like yeah. so much of it. it it's yeah. always been that way. I mean, yeah, the late great I, yeah. Chuck Berry. You know, he's mm. he wrote a song about it and then did it. You know, I mean, there's a video all, of it. Did yeah. what, yeah. Stephen? <laughs> <laughs> Took a young girl off state lines and went to prison for it. <laughs> I didn't think you, you don't could know get a lot about these people <laughs> for taking people across state lines. It's called a, it's called a man act, and if you had seen Smoke in the Bandit, you'd be aware. Correct? There you go. <laughs> well done. Well played, sir. And Thank so, you. so when you heard, I mean, when you heard Nevermind and that kind of stuff, were you instantly? Did it, yeah, you, I was pumped. Yeah. I, no, I. But also, once again, I was. I'm always like ten years older than the crew. You know what I mean? Because 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 just I was born in '59, so. Even with Jay, I'm like 10 years older than them. And with Lanigan, I was always like just older. So it wasn't like I was part of the scene, but I got to be involved in the scene and kind of help make records like with Tad and, you know, stuff like that. It was, it was, it was really fun. I spent a lot of time in Seattle and that was a blast. I had so much fun That's like a- making records there. It was really neat. I saw Tad open for Soundgarden, the Super Unknown tour. Amazing. They slayed. Yeah. yeah. Did, did yeah, like, awesome. you know, you oh were involved God. in it. And I guess you said you weren't surprised. You knew it was special. Did you oh, get, I knew it was so good. Did Saying, you get the impression that the guys in the bands, they really knew something was nah, happening? They were just doing their no thing. Clue. Yeah, yeah, they were just fucking... Just doing it. I remember working on a Tad record when uh, two of the guys were sitting on the couch and uh, Super Unknown was being recorded in the main room at ba- uh, uh, Bad Animals. And Randy Johnson, the really tall pitcher from the Mariners, oh, went yeah. to visit them. And he was a huge Tad fan. And he came into the studio to say hello to them. And I turned around, and this really huge, thin guy had a duck under the door jam to come in and say hello. And two of the guys were smoking hash, watching TV, and they went, hey. And I was like, hey. Like, I was, like, totally psyched. And they were just like, 
hey, and they like could give a fuck. And I was, he left, and I was like, that was fucking Randy Johnson, goddammit. And they were like, whatever. No cares. Yeah, they didn't fucking care. They were How just about, well, he can you throw talk a ball about, 102 yeah. miles yeah. an hour, I, man. I was just like, ah. I don't even know sports. I know that guy. Yeah. I, I remember in, um, uh, like, Dinosaur Jr. has gone on record talking about how, like, they broke up before Nirvana, like, hit. And well, they the, but they still yeah. Lou Lou basically Lou got jet yeah. yeah left. I, or saw, got I, I saw Dennis Jr. right after Lou left. Where right. they had like who can play, and they got right. the bass player. Yeah, Mike Johnson, who yeah, was yeah, yeah, actually yeah. Yeah, yeah, pretty awesome guy. He was a Seattle guy actually. Yeah, I mean that was a I, that was like a great tour. I saw it was like ninety two or something. But it was um they talk about like well, like did they, did you ever think. Like Nirvana would be the one that faded away, but Nir- Dinosaur Jr. is still the band cranking out like amazing hit, like not amazing hits, but amazing records. You know, I thought Nirvana. I mean, there was we we were working on Without a Sound the day that Kurt, uh, well, they found Kurt's body, mm-hmm. so we were working on a record that fucking day, Jeez. like in uh, I think it was Baby Monster on 14th Street in Manhattan, and. It was just like the, re- the whole day we just sat in the lo- uh, in the lounge watching mm-hmm. MTV. We were just like, ah. um, but to answer your question, I never, I thought they would just make a shitload of records. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? They just seemed like they were just, you know, I mean, he seemed like so prolific and just so yeah. great as an artist. You know what I mean? I, I, I won't say, I, I wouldn't say I thought he would have a Neil Young scope of a career, but I, you know, yeah, I, w- I was shocked. I never would have thought you know he would have you know somebody who like we talk about that, that 90s young. sound like he like like typified that because he touted those influences like dinosaur jr and pixies and all that like on his sleeve more than anybody i think who kurt yeah i mean i feel like that's how i learned I what mud like, honey was yeah. i feel yeah, like Vaseline, uh, I, I feel like mm-hmm. on a certain level like smells like teen spirit has a bit of boston in it you know what i mean i feel like there's some major rock chords there yeah. that are even kind of mersh and you know what i mean but it oh, delivered it in mm-hmm. a way that is so angsty and heartfelt and, you know, almost the grunge version of, like, gr- the, the punk or something. You know what I mean? It was Butch just, Vig said it's a pop record. He said that's what right. I heard was pop, you know. Yeah, right. I right. always found that with Grohl, too, with the drums on those records, that he writes, he definitely writes drum riffs, you know, like where right. it, it's totally matching the vocals and stuff like that. Right. But there are times in those records I'm listening to a groove and I'm like, that is a straight '70s rock. Group. Mm-hmm. That is just like a big, but delivered in a really a unique way. But yeah. since to he like was Seattle. a punk or hardcore mm-hmm. guy or something, maybe he just gave it that little extra yeah. life yeah. for sure. Yeah. I mean, John, can you listen to music like just for fun, or like when you're listening to music, are you like, uh, I would mic this differently? No, I like, never do that. Really? Mm-hmm. If I was that guy, I'd hate music. <laughs> yeah. No, seriously, I totally <laughs> when I'm when I'm not working. I, I quite frankly. When we finish the Holy Sons record, I mean, that CD goes in the car and it still comes up. We listen to it still a bunch. My daughter knows all the lyrics. My wife loves it. We listen. I never think about the production. I just listen to the record and I just love it. You know what I mean? I just, I sing along. I just crank it. I I love the vibe. But other records, like whatever band I'm listening to at a moment, it's not even like, I, I don't think about it at all until someone says you know would you make our next record then i'm like okay let me think about what i would do so there's has there ever been a record that like can you separate like the production from the song like hear a song and be like oh wow that sound what they did there sounds cool as opposed to what the song sounds like yeah but those are not necessarily my favorite records are definitely not great productions and not great songs you know what i mean like i like 
it's songs, you know what I mean? Mm. Like, one of my favorite records of all time, certainly in the 90s, is B-1000, the Guided by Voices song, mm. which is the ultimate lo-fi record ever. And I just fucking love it, you know? I just did a playlist for a bar that's opening up in our uh, in our neighborhood called Lo-Fi, and they asked me to do a lo-fi playlist, and I put a bunch of Guided by Voices on it. Do you know why it's called B-1000? No. Check here. This is this is my favorite trivia, because I, I love Guided by Voices, yeah. and he said it in a show. It's when you hold your tongue and say Pete Townsend. <laughs> because of motherfucker, yeah, I like it. Wow. So, yeah. Do you dissect records though? Like, do you if you get something? Do you ever listen to things as a reference and dissect it? Like, hey, I want you to mix our record, and we kind of want it to sound like this vibe. You know, I try not to do that because I feel like that's not what I do, and I feel like if someone wants me to work on a record, I'd rather do what I do, and I'll, I'll take direction. But, but like, I, I mean, even like with a lot of bands who approach me, who've had like a couple of records out. Uh, uh, Motion City Soundtrack's a perfect example. I purposely didn't go back and I knew who they were. My kid was really into them, like, you know, wh- when she was like 20 or something. Um, I didn't purposely didn't go back and listen to their records because I didn't want to get locked into something that I wouldn't do. I wanted to really do something different. You know what I mean? So I almost feel like unless I have to, I'd rather just, you know, hear the songs and just go from there and, and just you know just give it a fresh approach how are your ears doing what <laughs> <laughs> my ears are fine you know the thing is like i wear i don't go to a ton of shows when i do i go to i go i wear earplugs um i don't monitor particularly loud i don't okay. listen to big speakers I, I mix low because i feel like that's the best reference and um yeah i feel like i'm just i've taken care of them forever i've been wearing earplugs for you know, 25 years, like literally. Uh, you you, beat, you beat the movement. Well, you know, I <laughs> had those you. fucking artist earplugs yeah. forever. Like, you know, in 1991, I went to an audiologist and, cool. you know. What I don't do now is I don't get my hearing checked anymore because fuck that bullshit. You know, I bring my record to the mastering engineer, Greg Calby, <laughs> and like, I, I tell you, I've been mixing at Water Music and... I bring my record to him and like he still like at times masters songs flat, which to me is like, you know, fuck it. I don't want to go to a doctor. I I, I can hear. okay, You know what I mean? It's like, I don't you know, I don't I don't worry about that shit. I definitely don't psych myself out, but I definitely do take care. And I think the monitoring low is really good. And then, you know, when guys want to crank it, I just like stand in the back of the room. All right. Where's your like, uh, I know I I know a lot of uh, engineers and stuff. They love listening on a very particular sound system, the one that they trust, the one that they've known for a long time. You mean time. a studio or at home? Either. I know a okay. lot of guys who, who will be in the middle of a studio and burn it on CD and pop it out to their yeah, car. Yeah, 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 yeah. I used just to do get that. that sense. Where's like the most uh, consistent place for you to listen to a mix where you can hear that variation the most? Well, here's what I do now, which I've been doing for like 10 years, which works great for me. Every studio I go to, I put a CD in, uh, Where You Been, the Dinosaur Jr. record, and I listen to that song, Get Me, like okay. five times in a row. Huh. Like first thing while I'm patching everything and setting everything up. That song, I know sonically great top to bottom. And we did it with your record. I mm-hmm. just put it in first thing. And I listen right at the sweet spot in the console. So I understand how everything sounds at the console. Sorry. But I also know the inadequacies of that song you know what i mean i'm not saying that song is perfect right you know what i mean i just know you know it inside out i know it where it's at and and then i just go at the sweet spot i used to do the car thing and i just find the car thing and then you know earbuds and on this computer it's a waste of time yeah it really is because if you really know where you're sitting where you're doing it you're good and i don't care i mean if guys want to take it out to the car that's fine you know i don't say no you can't listen 
But at a certain point, like I said, I've been so locked in at Water Music in Hoboken that the fact that Calby masters my a lot of my shit just flat is great. And it's like bringing your um, term paper to the professor. You know, every time still, after all this time, working with him at 91, when I bring him the record or I send him the record and he, I get the phone call from him, I'm like, fuck. And he's like, no, it sounds great. If I did like this song, this song, this song flat, this one I had like a DB of 10K and I was like... Whew. All right. <laughs> Nailed another one. <laughs> another doctorate for Johnny. <laughs> you know who this Greg Calby guy is? I don't. I don't know. Go ahead. Tell him. Well, he's Amazing. just like, you know, in the running for like the most legendary master in the world. And he, uh, I mean, he's done, he's done like a list of records that, you, you know, are probably thought of. And this is, this would be where my point, it, it, music is so highly psychological you know you can technically analyze it but really the way it affects you emotionally is a pretty Taoist plane you know it's it's this mm. kind of relative you know you can you can probably talk all day about whatever you know api board is run through but like we were sitting down with greg cubby and he's done dylan john lennon tom petty all yeah, the damn stuff the torpedoes yeah, everything unforgettable fire and these things become uh psychological watermarks for people entering into music right mm. they're like oh that's what a record sounds like not realizing that they're made by other flawed human beings that are just kind of approximating an image of what they think rock music is or whatever sure. so you enter into this kind of beautiful confluence of factors that don't necessarily have to be that way but mm. they happened that way and we all take it as like law you know mm. what i mean so we're sitting down with greg Cowby, and i just thought um you know i should probably ask him a question i have like five minutes to ask him a question i and the only thing i could think of was basically kind of what you guys just asked john's like when you go home and you're ready to relax and you pour yourself a big glass of whiskey and you put on a record, you know, what are you actually going to want to listen to sonically? What's going to make you happy being that this is the guy who's kind of, he's the, the, you know, the filter that all this music has come Mm -hmm. through at the end of the day, what does he want to hear and where his values kind of focus, you know, their aesthetic pleasure. And, and he was like, he basically said what John is saying, like he didn't, he doesn't have any interest in production, actually. <laughs> it was like this <laughs> hilarious thing. You know, it's his job to make things sound good. But when you get home and you put something on, your psychological impression of what you're hearing in ways is beyond reason. You know uh, what I mean? Yeah. And so he said his answer was like, I just listen to songs. And, you know, if the songs are awesome, that's my favorite record. And yeah, and he he was like, you were expecting some humdinger, like I actually didn't know why I was even asking it, but I wanted to. I like to ask people questions a lot, and I and I like to try to put them in a position that gives me some practical like takeaway, you Mm -hmm. know. And I wanted to just kind of force them into some position that, if even it was awkward, I would learn something. And it's funny because I've told this story a few times. So obviously, I, I picked up something, and he he like cited some Peter Gabriel record, which I'm not a, an expert on him, but he was saying like it's a terrible sounding record, <laughs> but it's like my favorite record. So it just goes to show you must be security. I, it was <laughs> no, no. I can't remember which one it was, 
But uh, Peter Gabriel fans at home are like shaking yeah. their fists. All the diehard Peter Gabriel fans. That's why I'm saying I'm like, which one sounds? But they're shame? all they're all called Peter Gabriel, so it's hard to tell which one. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah. it's like it's all with the melting fingers and the melting. Yeah, the first three are all called Peter Gabriel. Yeah. Yeah. They told mind fuck. It's yeah. also just totally fucking <laughs> relative, lazy prick. You know? Yeah, because it's like whatever you really decide, mm-hmm. and then and even if you're wrong, just straight up wrong, mm-hmm. and you enter the industry, and you may become the guy that invents the Eventide. Harmonizer, you may you may become uh, the guy who invents a new form of dance music because that shit sounds completely wrong in so many ways. <laughs> like the spare the snares are like super sped up in some crazy jungle way. The bass drum were actually sampled cardboard boxes. Like that's wrong, but it's totally right to somebody. Mm-hmm. Not to like do an old like cliche, like it just doesn't fucking matter or anything. But that is really interesting that a lot of music that you're hearing when you hit play a lot of it is operating outside of your hearing range so you're you're getting all these vibrations that aren't necessarily things that you can coherently discern so there is magic involved in listening to music and if a kid just like sticks a mic on a fucking refrigerator hum Weird things happen, and someone like John might be like, that's my favorite new record. You don't know. (laughs) You don't know. I I listen to that and talk radio. I can't can't decide what I like more. (laughs) Same difference. Yeah. I love talk radio. I was wondering, uh, I I saw that you were saying one of the issues with the technology and like, like you were saying the ease of Pro Tools and the patching and the things you can do have maybe as an ancillary force bands to not focus on arrangement as much. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, recently I was having a bit of like a seventies day at my house and I was listening to a Steely Dan record and I'm not like the biggest Dan fan in the world, but I'm like listening to it really part by part. I'm listening to bass. I'm listening to drum parts and I'm like, Jesus Christ, like this was recorded live. I don't even know if I know anyone who who can play this live. The one with the the hits on it. Is it Asia? No, they all have hits, man. Um, Asia's the one, but Asia's the one where they well, have the wow. one with the uh, reeling in the ears on. It. <laughs> okay, so that's like the first one. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah, yeah so, so I'm listening to the actual parts, and I'm like, I'm like having a hard time. I had thinking of a person I know who could actually execute this part live. Yeah. yeah. And and do you really see that like um, a loss of uh, craftsmanship and musicianship over the years? necessarily think that i think i'll give you a perfect example i'm in the middle of a record with uh this girl jessica lee mayfield who's on ato and my band which was wonderful which was steve shelley from sonic youth on drums email on bass and my buddy cam who was in the streets of laredo on guitar and her playing guitar and i so i put together my like little wrecking crew you know and these guys played the shit out of this record and it was wonderful and it was inspiring and it was fun. They came up with great ideas and I feel like that can still happen. You know what I mean? And the record has a vibe because of that. Mm -hmm. Maybe it's not perfect like the Steely Dan record, but the record has a life that it wouldn't have had if she had three of her buddies from Nashville come up and play. Gotcha. So there are still people out there who can do what they do. I mean, Emil's a perfect example of his chops on... Every instrument I've seen him play are so amazing. Like, as a bass player, he's to me is so much fun because he can go off full-on, like, crazy Paul McCartney riffing the whole time, or he can hold it down, or he can do both. And it's really a pleasure watching him musically play around the vocal, Mm. which is such a key element 
to recording, to, to being good at arranging yourself. And something a lot of bass players don't know. Well, and drummers. God yeah. damn. Drummers, like, you know, a drummer who can actually listen to the vocal and play a fill around the vocal as opposed to over the vocal is wonderful. And, and know when to push and pull and stuff unicorns. like that. Huh? We're unicorns. <laughs> I'm putting myself in this. Dude, no, good for you. <laughs> place, no, no, Benny's a very There's solid. a giant horn coming out of great, Benny's head. But you know what huh? I mean? So, but, yeah. but you know what I mean? It, it's really, it, there you go, a banana corn. <laughs> the, uh, but, but, the, but the thing is, so I think guys are still out there. Yeah. But you're right. The, this, and I've also worked on records where, you know, you're mixing and they're still arranging. And I, that would never happen if I was producing. But as an engineer, you know, you got to go with the flow sometimes. Yeah. Um, but no, as a producer, I'm a big fan of the rehearsals. You know, I sit with the artist, we do the arrangements, then we rehearse and we get the stuff together and not rehearse to the point where it's like everybody's yawning and they know the songs, but rehearsing to the point that everybody has their thing together and then let's have fun in the studio. Right. Um, I think it's super important to still do that. And I'm pretty lucky, once again, as an older guy, to know that chain of events, you know, and really feel like that's important. And, you know, I've done stuff like a whole steady record where we did a bunch of songs like that and then we left one song that they didn't know that we learned in the studio and we just did it in the studio and that was fun right. but i wouldn't do a whole record like yeah that. i wouldn't i wouldn't be, like you know like you know like bank on a record being coming out great by doing that every song that would scare the shit out of me i, yeah. I was curious about that because whenever movers come i'm always like i always ask them like do you ever come to people's houses and just nothing is packed and they're like yes like yeah. people we come in and like literally what do they do they they were basically like we'll just leave or we'll like just wait around and we'll charge them more but yeah i was curious like it must be the same thing as like it's crazy. making a record if you come to the studio it's like yeah we sort of have these ideas it's like why didn't know that existed until gaslight signed to a major label and i started talking to some a and r guys and poking their heads about other bands and particularly big ones i'm not gonna say which bands they were but there was one band in particular we were scheduled to be released three months after them. And this was the whole marketing plan, too, was right. that their record comes out, then there needs to be this wait and this and that. We finished our record, and they were still on, like, song three, producer yeah. four, yeah, studio yeah. seven, never had songs yeah, to yeah. start with. And even though someone else is paying for it, I don't know if it's because I'm from Jersey, I have a different sensibility. <laughs> I'm like, why the fuck? You and your Jersey Aren't attitude. you just sitting in your fucking garage yeah. somewhere writing songs and not spending a million fucking dollars and but, flying but all over and doing this but shit? But for perspective, is it like a U2 or REM style band or is it a band that's putting out their second record? It was a band who had had hits. And we're like looking for more. So, but that not, level, not, not that on big. a U2 level, not that big, right? Close at one point at a height. Yeah. Maybe. Cause I mean, I, I know guys like that. Once you've gotten to that realm, right? You, you know, you don't know how to step bets, back. Yeah. All bets are off. I right. mean, you know, you know, so the guitar player for whatever band goes to Jamaica with his Rickenbacker and a Vox, Vox amp and spends a week trying to get a guitar sound and can't do it and they leave. Right. You know what I mean? That's fucking ludicrous. <laughs> on the on the labels, done. right, right, yeah. or on their, you know, right. they signed a you know a fifty million dollar three record deal, mm -hmm. you know, so and then give it away for free on iTunes. Well, whatever. But the point is, like, you know, that shit still happens when you're on right. that level. But right, certainly, right. you know, at at the uh, the working, you know, I want to say indie rock or whatever. The working reality of today is, you know, I got my bands like you know pretty much 
knowing what they're doing. I mean, I want to go in, come in on budget. You know what I mean? I, I'm not, you know, I'm not doing an emo record, a Holy Sons record, and coming in like fifty thousand dollars over budget. That's fucking ridiculous. Right. You know, it just it's, there's no reason for that. Sure. Yeah, people forget the uh, you got the art, but you know. It's business. So, oh, yeah, you know, listen, yeah. I always joke with people like uh, my neighbors who think like, oh, you're in music, you know, great lifestyle, blah, 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 you know, like, oh, you the party life and all that shit. I'm like, dude, I'm like a product manager in a way. Yeah. You know, because the other hat is I get a budget of whatever amount of money and I got to bring this product in for that amount of money. I've got gotta, responsibilities. I'm not like, you know, doing lines off of emails like butt, you know, in the control the room. Right. When do you do like, that, though? When do the, the lines off the sell. butt happen? Uh, the end of record party. Fair enough. Fair <laughs> enough. There's one question I got to get in before it stops because I feel like you've recorded so many classically awesome guitar players who use classically awesome sounds. And even currently even with like curvile and stuff like that what in your estimation is the perfect or the coolest not just perfect guitar to pedal to amp scenario is there like just one golden goose no i can't because you know thurston and lee are different from kurt and jay you yeah. know i honestly feel just like depends. i just put the mics really close to the amp and though i've been also i'm lucky with those guys those guys all have their signature tone i mean jay Jay is, you know, the first record I worked on with him, Where You Been, he he put this fucking blanket up on the control room window so I couldn't see out into the <laughs> studio and had a million pedals. And I would just sit there and he would go clunk, 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 clunk. And then he would go, okay, and he'd hit the pedal, brr, and then I would record, you know. It was like he just wanted to be in his own space and didn't want, you know. So I would put my mics just right up on the amp and make sure they sound good. Not even much EQ. I've been really lucky. I mean, honestly, it's like... Those guys get great tones, and I'm lucky enough not, you know, to be smart enough to capture that shit. Yeah. You know, I can't, like, I'm no rainmaker when it comes to that shit. You know what I mean? Those guys are fucking great. So, and, and that logic is part of the greatness in doing something that you do, knowing when to let a talented person just go nuts. Yeah, I mean, I, listen, shit. I might walk out and tweak an amp now and then. Right. I mean, certainly with the younger kids, I will do a lot of tweaking and stuff like that, but those guys are four examples of guys who don't need me don't to fucking. Need it. Tweet yeah. their shit. You're about to set off an eBay frenzy with that one. <laughs> yeah, I, I could make shit up. Yeah. You know, this pedal's now three so, grand. It's the BC rich bitch and yeah. uh, for a Roland JC120. It's um, a crate. You gotta get that metal so. zone in there. Yeah, yeah get yeah, the metal dude. zone. There you go. There you go. Couple DOD pedals. Yeah, perfect. I wish I made my own pedal. I could just say it's the John and Yellow special uh, flaccid um, overdrive. <laughs> uh, Actually, this is kind of a nerdy question. Has anyone ever asked you to do like um, signature plug-in presets? Or... I do some for my brother's company, Eventide. You do? Yeah, oh, we cool. do a couple. There's a couple on the H9 that are like too, my too things. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. I want to and they, they have, no, it's All right, <laughs> All right so here's a plug. So Eventide's got this new plug-in that's really cool, Fission, that does separates the attack to the decay and to the tone and all that. And you can actually rework shit. And uh, I've got a, me and my buddy Stuart. We we have a podcast called Gear Club. I'll plug that too, nice. which is very new. It's only six in, and it's just great. You know, it's like the car talk of audio. We I can just, listen to it all day. Yeah, um, it's I just very keep ridiculous. thinking right now that so so one of our other hosts, Brad, who's the producer who we worked with over at Rubber Tracks forever, and yeah. one of our old friends who who's in the Goops and all that. The fact that he is not here right now. <laughs> 
<laughs> I just keep thinking of how bad he is going to be flipping out. Is he? he? Oh, my God. He would have so many questions. He mixes all our stuff and does everything. Oh, cool. And he's just the best. Oh, I can come back whenever you guys want. This yeah, is fun. Yeah, that'd be yeah. amazing. He's gonna, I'm now, I mean, I'm now like the queen of podcasts. I feel like between my podcast and this, you know. You can come I, back I love all this. the time. Yeah, no, I love this shit. You could guest host. You know, Please. I never thought about yeah. doing this at all until my bro told me and my buddy Stuart, hey, you guys should do a podcast. We were like, fuck it, we're too busy. And then we just did, like, last June, we did, like, an hour of just bullshitting with each other and just having fun doing what we would normally talk about at a restaurant or, you know, at a bar. And it turns out it's, like, a good rapport. You know, we're, like, buddies for 30 years and we both make music. So, but no, um, but but anyway, yeah, I would, I would you know, it's, to me, this is fun now. I'm, I'm really enjoying it. All right. Yeah. Thank you to John and Yellow for coming on the podcast. Yeah, Please check you. out John's podcast, Gear Club. And if you want to record a record with John, you should email him. And you should do it at Pulse Music. Yeah. You can make the record here. Um, Steven would be happy to assist, right? Do you assist uh, still? Absolutely. Okay. There you go. Um, yeah. So do a record. Steven, John, and Yellow can record your band here. <laughs> I don't know how much it would cost or what their availability is. But you could sound as good as we sound right yeah, now. Yeah, you could sound this good. <laughs> so think about it. You could also record it here without John. Um, and save some money. And save, probably save a lot of money. And you know what? It might even sound better. I've, Steven's amazing. I think you could just use Steven. Oh, thank you. Yeah, you could. I mean, it just kind of depends what you're going for. Um, if you have any money left over after that, you can Venmo it to us to help oh, us yeah. support our server costs. Our Venmo name is at OffTrack, O-F-F-T-R-A-C-K, and the account is linked to Brad's name. I'm not sure why he won't explain it to me. <laughs> Every time I bring it it's up, okay. he tries to change the subject. It's okay. There's no money there. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, we haven't gotten any money yet, which is so weird. It's weird. Brad said I actually owe him money and made me, and made me pay He sent him. you a Venmo request. Yeah, yeah. So I paid it. He said we had a lot of, uh, like, maintenance fees. <laughs> so I've got some maintenance fees, man. Yeah. Yeah, so uh, please send me money so I can pay back Brad. Um, you can also uh, like us on iTunes, subscribe, tell your friends about us, tweet at us, uh, let us know you're listening. And yeah, thank you so much to John. Thanks to Pulse Music, and we'll be back with another podcast next week. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.